for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Okay, dear listeners, you're going to want to strap on your seatbelts for this one. My friend Tyson Yunkaporta, author of Sand Talk, returns to the podcast. This is his third appearance, and it's been a while. It's been over a year, and we wanted to have kind of a proper yarn about all the things that we've been thinking about. I've been emailing him a bunch of stuff. Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, have you seen that? Hey, here's a theory about this. And uh, Tyson kindly took time out of his busy schedule. He's got a book that's due in a couple of weeks. And we just uh, got on uh, Riverside, which is my, my new Zoom, and we, we yarned. And I started by asking about um, chapter two of a new book called The Dawn of Everything, which I thought asserted that everything we think about as European enlightenment and liberalism actually came from the native North American indigenous critique of Europe by um, Wendat scholars and uh, people from from, uh, sort of the northeastern woods of Canada and what's now New England. And immediately Tyson said, no, man, I don't see it like that. Um, It's more of a dialogue. And we just kind of got into it. From there, I'm looking at my uh, hand scribbled notes. We talk about the terror of the biotic and how colonial uh, civilizations have basically been an invading pathogen everywhere they've gone and are therefore terrorized by the worlds in which we live. We talked about um, the fact that you can't really create a binary of indigenous and non-indigenous, that at the end of the day, we're all humans, just like all dogs sniff each other's butts. All humans act in certain uh, human ways. And if we're just given the freedom to do so, we will do so. We talked about the pessimism that many of us feel, especially younger generations, Gen Z, some millennials around, is this world ever going to be okay again? Is there a world in which I can live and contribute Um you know, with climate change and political instability and pollution and all the other things that are going on. We talked about our own kids and some of the challenges that they're going through. Tyson talks about the the opportunity in front of us, as he calls the beginning of a thousand year cleanup, uh, which kind of is kind of hopeful, like there's something to be done. And there's, uh, you know, good work for us to do. And we just have to kind of figure out how to transition to that. Um, anyone, he says, who's not really depressed and devastated by the state of the world right now kind of isn't paying attention. And at one point, I made just a comment about my own background and upbringing, being a conservative Jew from the suburbs of New Jersey. And that led Tyson to explore uh, a very interesting topic that I've never really thought about, which is the survival, the long history of survival and morphing of the Jewish people. And why we've done it and how we've done it and what the patterns and systems are that have allowed us to travel around the world to semi-assimilate into many, many different cultures. And from Tyson's perspective, there's something that is embedded in that system of peoplehood that could be very useful for all of us today going through these incredible transitions. And finally, the question that I always come back to with Tyson, even though I try not to, is how can I become more indigenous? And we talked about just cleaning up your own river and connecting with other people who are cleaning up their places and to create 
this kind of um, energetic moral system, a, a law that's greater than all of us that encompasses everything that we're doing. Anyway, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of, of you know, juicy cursing and philosophy and arguing back and forth. And it's such a great pleasure and a privilege to be able to have this platform where I can have conversations with people like today's guest. So without further ado, hello, Tyson. It's great to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you, Howie. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're, we're going to yarn about something, hopefully, right? Yeah, we've been back and forth emails yeah. for oh, over a year now. You you flick me provocations from time to time. Most recent one is the um, um, old mate, Unc there, Graeber. Yeah, uh, passed away, and uh, and Wengro that uh, Dawn of Everything book, and you, uh, yeah, you flicked me um, a provocation about chapter two. So I got this one beside me now, and I've just uh, been, I've, I've just been reading the chapter to prepare for this, and I only got halfway through it, unfortunately. Okay, well, there's, there's been like all these yeah. different things, and I've, I'm a li I feel a little self conscious sending it to you, like, like I have no idea, like what's just known. In the academic community, in the you know, the indigenous communications around the world community, like I'm just sort of stumbling upon stuff. So I'm like, I don't. I'll send mm -hmm. it to you, and like, no idea. Like, oh yeah, obviously, you know, I've known about this for 20 years, or oh, this is new. Yeah. Well, look, it's. I mean, pretty much everything in there. Um, you know, I, I don't know. You, I mean, you've probably come across this idea of a thought terminating cliche. Huh. No, you know, you know what I mean? Um, pretty much everything in there that you might say, and most of the things that I say most of the time, <laughs> there's a thought terminating cliche is deployed to just shut down that conversation really quickly. And that's just, um, you know, Russo, noble savage, <laughs> uh -huh. you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's just like, they just have to say it. Uh, right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, just to, to give some some uh, background, and I don't really have a background in philosophy except, you know, what I had to learn in high school, and it never felt particularly relevant to my life. But I guess this book, The Dawn of Everything, basically says that everything that I value about Western civilization that I'm grateful for in terms of liberty, equality, freedom, humanism, respect for other human beings – didn't actually come from Europe and was actually never practiced in Europe, but it actually came from European, the, a critique of Europe from uh, indigenous North Americans, particularly from uh, the, the eastern woodlands of, of uh, New England and Canada. And, you know, thinking, well, thinking well, of that, that, that would just hurt a fellow. That would just hurt a fellow to see it that way. I'm not, I'm not seeing it that way. I, I'm just I'm looking at it and seeing, ah, yeah, this is uh this is a really good case for the fact that, you know, um, it, it, everything that's claimed to be like uniquely Western is actually something in dialogue that we've done together in dialogue. Hmm. Um, I, I think dialogue would be a more accurate representation. I think that's more what the book is saying. I don't think it's saying, you know, oh, Europe's got nothing and they just stole it from everyone else. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there's a, a certain amount of dialogue that's gone on there. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. So I think, you know, it's interesting because I I think I may read through this stuff with a sort of a sense of, of guilt or performative. I don't want to be whiteness, <laughs> you know, mm. like like so I'll, I'll, I'll read it and start trumpeting in, in a certain way that uh, 
you know, a kind of reverse narcissism or whatever the opposite of that is. Mm. Um. Yeah. Well, look, I, I maybe look, that's going to be the same. I don't know. Look, you know, one day, okay, our grandkids are going to be talking one day and like, um, you know, and, and like, you know, everyone in the, the world's going to be like vegan and, <laughs> and my grandkids are going to be like on the back foot. You know, they're going to be like all ashamed of their, their, their omnivorous, um, <laughs> backgrounds. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, oh man, I'm just an om- omnivore. I just feel I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> uh-huh. I've destroyed the planet, you know, by eating all this protein and shit. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I just think things just shift. Things change. Things come into fashion. Things go out of fashion. Um, you know, I, I think if Europe had actually just taken all of the systems and stolen all the systems, you know, from the Southern hemisphere, then, you know, you would have like an anarcho communist kind of world order at the moment. And, um, and that's not what we've got. What we've got is a world order that's, that's obviously been influenced by those things. And, um, and it's come out of a dialogue, an asymmetrical dialogue at that so, um, yeah, I don't think you have to feel all, you know, like, mm. oh man, everything I really liked about the environment is just, is ruined now because it's not mine. And I don't want to be me because I'm white. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what to feel right now. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I remember asking you in our, in our last conversation after finishing Sand Talk and just having this incredible urge to, you know, it's a weird phrase, but like become indigenous like to ask you like, like how to do it. And yeah. you know, there's, it's not like there's a manual. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and yet, so to, you know, to, to be in dialogue to a certain extent means that to feel like I have, I have something to offer. Right. Which like, and, and I'm not, you know, c- coming from the culture in which I come, like one of the reasons that I so value your work is that it's constantly making me question these bedrock assumptions that I've never examined before about what's important, mm. about what's real, um, and and so so you know I'm trying to figure out like what's 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 worthy, what do I have to bring to a dialogue? Mm. Mm. I think we talked about um, last time we talked about like your relation with some of the plants that you're growing in the garden Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, there was a process you were going through, uh, with those plants and with harvesting them and everything else where, I don't know, you were probably putting in more energy than, than you would be deriving from actually eating, eating them in that particular, on that particular day. Yeah. But that somehow it, it nourished you otherwise. You know, it was the process, it was the ritual, it was the, all the family coming together to do it and all that kind of thing. I don't know. I think there's something in that. I think what we refer to as indigenous, you know, on the sort of postcard of culture, you know what I mean? What we refer to as indigenous is really just being human. Hmm. Um, and it's it's been what what all of us have been forever until you know, pretty much very bloody recently, you know, century or two, most people were this. 
and most of us, even as Indigenous people who are, you know, um, only very recently been sort of removed from from that uh, embedded lifestyle in the landscape and sort of semi-domesticated, you know, um, I don't know. It's just it's just a slightly different continuum. We're just slightly out of step with. I mean, what's it going to mean for us in three hundred years? 500 years, 50 years, you know, I mean, arguably in 50 years, if, if everybody hasn't reconnected and re-embedded within landscapes and, and begun really intensively living that, um, arguably everything's going to die anyway. So I don't know, what does it all mean? Hmm. Mm. Well, yeah, I just had a, a podcast conversation with um, Jamie Woodhouse, who's a proponent of what he calls sentientism, which is sort of like yeah. humanism, but expanded to sort of regard for all sentient beings, for anyone who can suffer. And he was sort of talking about, like, how do we know that we can't, we're not going to have sentient AI? And mm. and something in that was was fascinating to me, but also... Like, like I wanted to draw a line and say, like, no, that's not organic, that's not biological, that's not natural. But I, yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, there, there's so many things that, that I'm unsure of <laughs> mm. these days. Mm. Yeah. It, it's funny, though. There's uh, one of the things. Um, so, yeah, we just, I was just telling you that we were talking to Fritjof Capri yesterday. And one of the things we were talking about was that um, it was feelings and what feelings are, how that's uh, what the relationship of feelings to sentience, to intelligence, you know, true intelligence. Mm. And um, I don't know, I think we arrived at a place where it was like, well, feelings are, you know, the chemical interface between the intangible and tangible worlds. You know, so between a world of spirit, energy, flux, whatever, quantum, whatever you want to call it, so between that world and then this tangible reality here of flesh and soil, that's the chemical interface, hmm. it's those feelings. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, um, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a way of, um, of expressing that with digital technology in its current form mm. um, or with binary code or anything else. I, like, I don't think, um, I don't think a f the, the equivalent of a, a chemically induced feeling and sensation in a sentient embodied entity is possible <clears throat> like that. Like I think you'd, you'd need real wet wear and, biotech and you, you, you know they'd have to be sorting out all the informatics of molecules and you know how to encode and program information into that and and I, I really strongly feel that by the time they figure out how to do that they'll realize that that's already there and they don't need to be doing that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, there's really that's the only way that can work I think what they can do is a disembodied sort of consciousness which I think uh, a lot of the people who are leading the charge there are, that's what they're going for, this idea that they can upload themselves to a placeless space, mm. uh, a bodiless, disembodied 
uh, dim, uh, like godlike consciousness. Mm. You know, uh, pinging, pinging through the cosmos for as long as we can, you know, maintain the satellites to keep the signal going. Right. Um, is that is is that sort of a fear of death kind of thing that we have in? in these disembodied cultures? Because you talk about, in Sand Talk, you talk about, like, mm. ancestor mind and sort of, you know, place mind. Like someone, like, mm. like someone who truly believes that and lives in that way, do, like, do they need to upload themselves digitally? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's more of a loathing of, um, of biology. Mm. You know, the kind of messy, stinking... Uh, fluids and 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 grime <laughs> of biology. It's that that desire to be able to uh, be sanitized, to be you know um, you know to have a, a spick and span kind of nice clear surface way of being, um, and that that just doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's a terror of the biotic. Huh. Yeah. And so I guess if you're in a place and you're not in relation with that place, then the biotic certainly is um, hostile to you uh -huh. because you, really you're a pathogen, you're an invading pathogen <laughs> there, you know, and the system will seek to, you know, will will send a immune response <laughs> to you, you know. The, the spiders will come and bite you. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> uh, the snakes will bite you. The, the crocodiles will take you. The... <laughs> <laughs> the flies will sting you in your eyeballs and lay maggots in you. Actually, they won't lay maggots in you because that'll probably be good for you. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, the place will be hostile to you if you're not in it and of it. You know, then if you're not in it and of it, then you'll behave, be behaving like a hostile pathogen, and and the system will respond appropriately, I guess. So I suppose, you know, for people, you know, if you're invading. You know, if you're coming from a, you know, a completely different hemisphere or whatever, then you're, um, you're entering a, a biotic place. I mean, especially if you like, you know, you haven't been near the equator before. <laughs> all of a sudden, there's, there's all this warmth and the, just the air is full of bacteria and it's wet and hot and swarming and it's a petri dish of life. You must be feeling like, oh my God. You know, when I was living in the snow, you know, I couldn't smell my trousers quite so... I mean, it was like, this is my trousers that I've worn all my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and the guest gets washed twice a year when I have my own... When I, you know, when I go... When I, when I bathe for my biannual bathe or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess if you're in a cold place, you can you can sort of be dirty... And sort of be enclosed and be indoors, and so you, you don't smell it as bad. But I guess once you cross the equator, it's um, you're going to get a bit festy. And I guess this brings us to the topic of the second chapter of this, uh, the dawn of everything, a new history of humanity, that you uh, recommended to me. Yeah, David Graeber and David Wingro. Yeah, so I've been reading through that, and it's. Yeah, because <laughs> straight away I start thinking about all our, our old stories, you know, that I hear through our oral histories about, you know, first impressions and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the lesson I'm getting, I'm, I'm about in like chapter eight or nine now. And I think, you know, the 
what I'm getting is like every story that I've heard about human history is ultimately political. <laughs> right. Like, and the trouble is that they haven't been overt. Like I, like I wasn't aware of it. Like I, I didn't I didn't know why Jared Diamond's story has, has, you know, become gospel or now more recently, you know, Yuval Noah Harari sapiens like why he's mm. the favorite of Silicon Valley. I just thought, well, you know, it's clever. It's interesting. He's done a lot of research. He's a great writer. He's a compelling speaker. And that, you know, this book, it's pro liberalism and upholds the age of reason. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and seeing like this idea, like humans could be anything we want to be. Like it really mm. is our choice. And if we're living in, in societies that aren't serving us, it's not, you know, based on some sort of historical Nietzschean determinism of, uh, you know, thesis and antithesis leading to synthesis. It's like people made a bunch of choices, but but we feel disempowered because we think that we can't undo them because it's just, you know, the march of history. Mm -hmm. Mm. Like both, you know. I got um, sorry. You I just um, just when you were talking about the thesis and synthesis antithesis, and it was like it just reminded me. Recently, I got I got slapped by a mentor pretty hard for what he called my my um, what did he call it? Um, my crude Marxist inter interpretation of Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> which um. I don't know. He was he was looking at it a, a, a different way, and he so he threw back one of my own quotes at me to say it's closer to that. And so when I said um, I, he quoted me on when I said freedom freedom loves a good dungeon, <laughs> so he saw the dialectic more that way. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, well, it's just it's it's um it's more that paradox. It's more that. Um, you know, something existing also produces its opposite. And that, you know, and that that's the totality of the thing, that it's more of a dyad than a, um, than a separation, than a, a binary, you know. Oh. Anyway, that's, that's getting a bit esoteric there. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> you just distracted me. You distracted me. So I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll dream about it tonight. <clears throat> um, mm. But no, like it but I guess that's I, I guess that's the same thing look because we I mean we keep dancing around the same idea of like you know this idea that there's these there's these opposite things that there's this indigenous and non-indigenous there's these two different kinds of people mm. and there freaking isn't you know there's not like dogs and undogs you know? <laughs> there's just freaking dogs and you know um whatever kind, like wherever you're from, if you're a dog, then we're going to sniff each other's butt. You know, that's just some universal shit. You, know, you might have been trained not to sniff someone's butt and, you know, it might take a minute, but but but, but, but we're going to get back to sniffing around each other again. You know, it's, it's, it's just some normal dog stuff. <laughs> like, uh, so there's this idea of, you know, the, there's always this separation into opposites and like, somehow a continuum between and then somewhere we're in the middle of that's the virtuous space and all that kind of thing and i guess um that's kind of where i was thinking from at the start where i was talking about well it was more of a dialogical thing 
uh-huh. you know, the Enlightenment and Age of Reason and everything. You know, it's not like it was stolen from Native Americans. I think it's more of a, it was dialogue. Although I did say it was asymmetrical dialogue. So it certainly wasn't this balanced thing of these two opposites coming together and creating a third culture space that was just better than either and all that kind of bullshit, because I don't really believe in that. You know, it's more, um, it's more, more complex and, and less complicated than that. You know, it's, it's like that idea, freedom loves a good dungeon. You know, as soon as you create the idea of freedom, you, you create the idea of a dungeon. Mm. You didn't have a dungeon before that, and you didn't need the word freedom. Like, there's no word for freedom or free or anything that describes any act that is, you know, free of oppression in any of our indigenous languages. It's because you don't have the opposite of that. You don't have, you don't have unfree, so there's no reason for the existence of free. You, you just are. You know what I mean? So I guess... um in, you know, in creating something, you're also creating its opposite. So, you know, when, you know, our creation story ancestors, our creation events, you know, the creation of fresh water that necessitated the creation of salt water, you know, mm-hmm. you don't create high ground without also creating low ground, you know. Uh, these things are always two sides of the one coin and, and part of a, a unity, you know. A, um, mm. a unity with two faces, you know, and that's that's kind of how all these things go. Um, yeah, so that that reminds me of uh, sort of reading Alan Watts on uh, sort of Taoism. That you know, in, in Western civilization, we're always trying to get rid of the South Pole, of the magnet, mm. Mm. right? That that you know, I think you go back to your idea of like this this sort of purity. Like we just, yeah. we, we, we like absolutes and it's, it's yeah. hard to, to be in that messy, you know, ooze and suck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does make a good argument that chapter too. And I mean, you're talking about that kind of Asia and that dialogue with, uh, you know, with the East there. And I don't know, it does, it does make a pretty compelling argument there of, of you know well you know maybe it is a coincidence but it just so happens that at exact you know just after europe encountered china and started um and there and all these works and writings and and uh, dialogues came out where people were reporting about chinese administration you know and governance mm-hmm. um it just so happened that just after that um european governance shifted towards the same model um however you know we might be right, you know, it could still be that, you know, Europe invented it. They invented it and um, just sort of sat on it for a thousand years and, and they just happened to implement it, you know, just after they got back from China. You know, it, it could be that it was invented by Europe. Anyway, but more than likely, uh, it was just borrowed from China. <laughs> um, and you know what? I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think that's a huge gift. Like, I think that's the worst part. That's the worst part of uh, this system, this liberalism, this global culture, is some of the stuff they took from China. That I, I don't think, that the, you know, how to make a centralized bureaucracy work is a great freaking gift to the world, do you? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, you know, the, 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 I'm not a fan. You know, the chapter I'm on now talks about <clears throat> like evidence for these ancient cities, you know, four or six thousand years old that that had you know mm. large agglomerations of people, but no state, no tax collectors, you know, yeah. no police. So, kind of give, giving the lie to this idea that the the city, you know, the human beings can't aggregate together without these mm. scaffoldings to keep us, you know, con- under somebody's thumb. Yeah. Mm. And I, I just love all these tech fixes for that problem. It's like, because everybody hates the middleman, everybody hates the hierarchy, and it's like, well, you know, we'll have some tech fixes here, we'll create a, a decentralized central administration. <laughs> <laughs> it'll still be centra- central administration, and we'll, we'll behave like that exactly the same way and eliminate the need for trust and everything else, but <clears throat> it'll be distributed. Yeah. So you're talking about like blockchain? Yeah. yeah and all the, like all, everything that comes out of that, uh, that culture, that community, the, the hopes around that, even you know, Holochain and all these things. Um, yeah. Um, you know, but more than that, I'd say that that's not just a, the t- a tech fix. That's something that people have been trying to figure out for ages with them. Um, you know, co-ops and things like this. Uh, they've been trying to figure out how how you can do, uh, you know, a hierarchical, industrialized, centrally administered sort of system. How can you do that but, but distribute it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just like, well, how about you just don't do it? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, one of the elements of what I'm going to call the indigenous critique, borrowing from Graeber and Wengro, to which, in which I include, you know, you as sort of my first serious intellectual, um, you know, dialogue partner in that critique, but then also reading, um, you know, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, sort of a season, you know, mm. a, a American botanist mm. from the Native American tradition. Um, and then yeah. re- way, way out of my pay grade. <laughs> Good. If you, if you could get, get her on, you'd be thrilled. You know, you made it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it, but yeah. also, you know, but just, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting from this, from that conversation, it's not, it's, it's really about a different fundamental understanding of what it could mean to be human. Like that, that what my culture tell, what the culture that I grew up in tells me about being human, there's, there's kind of no way to win. <laughs> it's, mm. you know, you talked about, you know, civilization is a self-terminating algorithm. It's like, you know, be, being a success, being wealthy, being in any way that which I'm atomized ultimately leads to mm. my demise. And what I love about about sand talk, about like really becoming immersed in old man Juba's explanation of how, how, how we're part of a community. This felt like, oh, like there's yeah. ways to win at that game. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there certainly is. But it's, um, you know, it's funny. We, I mean, we learned the lesson from other eras and then I, I, I don't know. We finally learned the lesson, and and we're like, ah, oh, okay. So you know, we finally have the will and the underst- shared understanding and, and agreements and and tools to be able to implement social justice. Um, 
40 years too late. <laughs> There's, there isn't, there isn't a world or a system or a structure or anything that, that that could operate in beyond, you know, the, um, decorative <laughs> side. You know what I mean? It's, we're ready to fix a system that no longer exists that we, we don't realize is no longer there. Um, Can you say more about that? What, what, yeah. what in particular? I'm not. All right. I'll read this paragraph to you that I wrote recently. I'm just trying to find it. Here it is. Um, it's just a, a fun metaphor I've been working with. Um, so, yeah, talking about, you know, indigenous sort of scholars and decolonial activists and all these sorts of things. Uh, so we finally arrived to dismantle the master's house using the master's tools, but he doesn't live there anymore. <laughs> he doesn't live there anymore. He's buying up water rights and spearheading land grabs elsewhere. He hopes we'll tear his house down because it's insured for more than he could get for selling the place. <laughs> his nephew, <laughs> his nephew, who's into social justice and deep ecology and philanthropy, is using the house now, uh, holding a frat party slash spiritual retreat there. And he invites us all in for vodka shots and ayahuasca. Now, nah, these new masters have no home, no country. They are super wealthy refugees from the great nations they have gutted and rendered irrelevant, building leaky life rafts from decentralized autonomous organizations, making a crossing to digital realms without Westphalian boundaries in a bid to keep all their shit while the world floods and boils. Um, yeah, anyway, that's where I came to with that. Holy shit, that's poetry. Um, I mean, that's... But hang on, this is better. This will, this will work better. All right. <clears throat> okay. I, f I feel like I'm in the presence of, like, Jeremiah. Like, let, let, Yeah, yeah. No, let, let's get away from that level, and, and let's just get back to my kids playing in the garden. All right, so a few sentences here. Okay, my son picks up a stick to play with, and his sister takes it off him and says, no, that's my stick, and whacks him with it. Um, he's confused and stands watching her for a while. She isn't playing with it. She's just holding it and glaring at him. He's just a toddler who can't speak yet, so he can't ask her the rules of this game. He just shrugs and picks up another stick. He's having a great time playing with this new stick now, and his sister is fuming. She goes around under all the trees and bushes, picking up every stick and throwing them all out of reach over the fence. Then she takes his stick and does the same. Finally, laying her stick, the one and only stick, on the ground in front of him. Of course, he picks it up. Hey, she yells, that's my stick. Rip, whack. <laughs> anyway, that, oh, and then I've got a sentence that says, that little girl is my retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> if this civilization somehow lasts longer than two more decades. Um, yeah. So there's the whole economic system right there in that little vignette. <laughs> it's a weird thing you know and it's uh in that i can see the um just reading today that second chapter you're talking about that, that um that kind of memory of the indigenous critique of western civilization and you know what it, it wasn't about romanticizing and the noble savage because most of the writing about it was a complaint that these savages are fucking laughing at us yeah. <laughs> Most of the things you read are not putting the natives on a pedestal. It's like, 
they're laughing at us. They think that we're the savages because of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> that's how stupid they are. So that's what that's how most of the records about that are, which sort of proves that it wasn't this romanticizing of things. It was like you know this absolute frustration that they don't understand how important property is. They don't understand how important it is to have a lord that you you know submit your will to. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess a lot of those yeah. writings were by the Jesuits, right? They were ta- they were the ones taking the good notes. Yeah, yeah. Right, but, th- oh but you know, but just they don't understand how important it is to control women's bodies. Yeah, <laughs> they don't understand how important um 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 bleeding is. Like, you know that <laughs> that medicine of sort of nicking the vein and letting the blood out into a bowl. That was your physician doing that to let the bad spirits out. <laughs> They don't have advanced medicine like us, like, uh, you know, bleeding patients <laughs> if they're sick. Um, or, you know, I don't know, what else did they used to do? Apart from put on those weird pointy masks and you know, those plague doctor masks and stuff. Oh, man. Yeah. But anyway, we're so grateful for the advanced medicine. <laughs> mm. Well, so like you know, thinking about that story about your kids and the sort of the metaphor of, of like this is the culture we're in. I'm not sure what to tell my kids who are in their twenties, mm. who are, you know, I'm I'm proud of how sort of open-eyed and radical they are about you know they're they're not they're not following a path of conventional success. They both want to be sort of mm. artists, communitarians. And they look around at society and they don't like they they're kind of hopeless a lot and they just don't know what to do about mm. it. Like, you know, mm. and I, I don't exactly know what to tell them. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, I really. So I got a couple of grown grown kids as well in their 20s. And they're both like, you know, um, you know, quite, quite depressed and motivated. They just, you know, and they just they just look around. And, it's all fucked. It's all fucked, yeah. Dad. There's, there's no, uh, there's no hope. There's no point. There's nothing. Um, yeah. So have a smoke, have a drink. Yeah, watch Netflix and and just die. <laughs> Not quite that bad, but you know what I mean. Like they, they're just kind of like quite. You know, they don't really have any hope. Um, they don't have much. Um, they don't have plans. Yeah. Neither of my grown kids have any plans for the future. And I've raised about, like, I don't know, a a dozen others. And nobody has very many plans beyond, you know, this Christmas. These young people, you know, they don't don't think, oh, you know, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be in this position. I'm going to have this much savings or, you know, I'll be halfway through to paying off an apartment and I'm going to you know, be able to afford a new car or they're, they're not even thinking in those consumer driven terms anymore. It's just like, yeah, there's nothing. Right. Right. And that's, that's, which is awful. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm seeing in, you know, so their, their friends who <clears throat> did, you know, go to college, go to grad school, get good jobs. Like that's the level at which they're seeing their peers who do have hope for the future. It's, it's pretty atomized yeah. and fragmented. Like, Oh, well they're, they're in a different, yeah, they're in a different place. I mean, my, my daughter, um, um, 
most of the girls in her graduating class um, are, 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 are cam girls online now. Or what? That's the only way they can. That's cam girls, you know, like uh, taking their clothes oh, off and cam. Sort of put, uh-huh. putting things into himself online to, to sort of, I don't know, um, for fellas to watch and, and send them money. Um, that that's what they do now, uh. half of them. And yeah, there's there's not many people who. I mean, uh, yeah, since she graduated, she spent like years just every week applying for several jobs. And um, you know, it's just uh, recently this year she finally got a job, uh, uh, just a part time casual job in a in a chemist uh, warehouse, sort of stacking shelves and things like that. Um, it's it's pretty freaking grim. Mm. Um, yeah, and my boy's still struggling too. I mean, you know, they're, they're both doing some uh, classes at uni and things like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I, I know we can't we can't tell them much, but you know what, what? Like I don't I don't know what I would tell them if if they if I thought they would listen. Like I do feel I don't know if it's hopefulness, yeah. but I feel like agency. Like there's things I can do. Like um, you yeah. know, maybe, you know, so I, I, I grew up a union kid. My father was a labor organizer. Mm. And, and looking back, like that was my religion. So we had songs, we had prophets, we had, you know, texts. And the, the, the mm. main hymn was Solidarity Forever, which was, you know, mm. written like in 1910 by uh, one of the Wobblies, a guy who like was, you know, killed in a labor dispute and the last the last mm. line one of the last lines in the last stanza is we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old mm. and like that line gives me hope because i'm seeing the world burning around us but i don't i don't know how to justify it except to say that it you know it mm. helps me sleep at night or how to how to yeah. share any of that optimism which i do kind of feel mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, um, I just try to spread enthusiasm for the thousand year cleaner. You know, that it's it's going to be fun and it's going to be, huh. it's going to be exciting and there's going to be a lot of agency in there, and, and quite a bit of lib- liberation and, you know, in in, you know, being able to just you know set all other all these other motivations and bloody whips and things that are driving us and that have to wheel set it all aside and be able to just focus on the cleanup and do it for a thousand years um until everything's sorted out it's just mm. yeah i just I, I think it's something to look forward to mm. um and something exciting but you know it's it's different you, you you're talking to um young people you know these gen z you know and beyond they, they don't have much to look forward to and you know and they don't they don't go for the same inducements. So, I mean, you know, so both my grown kids, like, yeah, they're doing a little bit of university here and there uh, when they could be bothered, but they're, they're kind of like, or when they've got time, because they're just trying to survive the rest of the time. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, we'll just get, I just get the, get the bloody uh, paper in. And it's like, they, they don't feel motivated to get a HD or an, like a high, high grade or anything. It's like the, they, they don't have those inducements. They don't feel those inducements. They don't, you know, the, 
if they got a like a top grade 100%, they would feel nothing about that. They would feel no different to get a top grade than, than if they just passed. You know, because that's that belongs to another world. That belongs to a world that's dead. That belongs to a world where, you know, that kind of uh, institutional capital, you know, that, uh, uh, that objectified, the capital that you would get from the grades, so converting your knowledge capital into that, that kind of institutional capital that, that would, you know, give you a piece of paper or a score that would have some exchange value in the real world that would give you some kind of advantage that would allow you to access real capital. You know what I mean? Yeah. That world doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't exist. It's, it's like the amount, like how hard they try or how hard they work or how lucky they are or anything else is going to have very little, very little bearing statistically on, on how well they do in their life. I mean, you'll find a handful of people to put up as case studies and go, oh, but what about this one? He worked his way up from nothing and now he's a billionaire. You're like, fucking great. Awesome. But, you know, statistically, they're not going to get there. 99.999% of them, it doesn't matter what kind of effort they put in, the outcome is going to be the same for them. So they're just, they have no inducement. So, you know, it's how do you then get them interested in, well, instead, how about, you know, yeah, ignore that then and uh, just build up your relational, your relational capital instead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Build up your your relationships, you know, with place and people and, and everything else. And, um, yeah, like, uh, and they kind of go for that a bit more. It sounds like your kids are there too, cause they're, they're into you know, being artists and in community and, and, and being active and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my daughter, you know, is a real community builder wherever she goes and she's been yeah. in Portland, Oregon and the community she built was around her work. She was working at a pizza shop. And she, you know, left under very difficult circumstances, you know, from from my perspective, hearing her story, management were a bunch of assholes. Yeah. And now she, and so she set fire to a few police cars there in Portland. And she's she's just trying to keep her own took over. She's trying to keep her own car from getting smashed up on a weekly basis. Yeah, yeah. It, tur it, tur it turns out that uh, I'm just teasing. That, well, no, I mean, you know. Like, she's not a fan of the police, but she's also not a fan of no police, yeah. it turns out. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, she, she built That's she built tricky, her community yeah. around this job where she spent most of her time. She's no longer there. It's like, you know, mm. like, if, if you're one of the people having a party at the nephew's uh, house yeah. where, where you it. know, like, how, how do you... What what kind of capital and maybe capital is exactly the wrong metaphor, but like yep. how do you build up your you know yourself mm. for what's going to come next and how do you survive while you're doing it? Well, that's just it. Like I said, it's that relational capital, and that's the thing. Anarchy doesn't work with collections of individuals, and that's what we learned that from Portland. Mm. You know, if it's people who are all individuals with an individualist survivalist ethos, you know, who are suddenly free of the constraints of any kind of, um, you know, any kind of, um, framework, 
you know, for how to, you know, be in relation with everybody and do minimal fucking damage to the place. You know, if they're just suddenly they have whatever removed, even if that's oppressive. And, but they still have the liberal individualist ethos of every man for himself. Anarchy is not going to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. All that, all that's doing is bloody, um, is, is, you know, just, it's just shaking it up, uh, shaking it up and resetting the board. And basically, you know, you're just going to have warfare until, uh, you're just going to have, uh, you're just going to have horror and rape and murder until warlords emerge and battle each other. And one of them comes out on top and then a new hierarchy emerges. You know, if, if you don't have a relational ethos, if you don't have, you know, real, like genuine cultures of people together with collective relational capital, um, that they all hold together, um, then anarchy doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the reason you need hierarchies. You only need hierarchies if everybody is like this, um, you know, um, this free market consumer driven individual, you know, that in its aggregate forms the invisible hand of the marketplace, etc., etc. You know, the you know, the drill. Mm. Um, but that's just not how we are as a species. We, we've never been like that. We don't like bosses. Um, you know, we also don't like psychos that sort of run around pissing in the water hole. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I just, I just finished a book um, called The Extended Mind, and it talks about basically how our minds are not just our brains, but, you know, they, our minds are also in relation to our bodies, in relation to the environment, mm. in relation to social connections. And, and there's a chapter about, you know, our mind in nature. And, her, you know, the author's point is, like, partly, like, we think of our minds, our brains as computers. Your computer works the same in the coffee shop as on the train, as in your office. But our minds work very, very differently. This is like that basically when we are in an urban setting, our minds are tuned towards competitiveness, like sort of so many people mm. around competing for the same resource. We better grab it now. Whereas the the uh, abundance and permanence of a natural setting says no urgency. So in you know in my notes I wrote mm. down so does does sort of urban capitalism cause addiction? Like it pre- predisposes us constantly to this competitive urgency to consume. Mm. Like can we? You know, can we think our way out of this, you know, these individualist ethos to become more of a of a collective in the in cities, in in the built environments that are predisposing our brains to scarcity? Well, I mean, how long has it been in this um, consumer driven culture with the. Dispos- whole disposable sort of thing. I mean, I remember milk bottles when I was a kid. I don't know if you had milk bottles. Uh, like, you know, with a milkman that comes around, he collects your bottles off the doorstep and replaces, yeah. you know, or fills them up for you or whatever. Yeah, no, we were, we were, we were slightly um, more upscale suburban. We could buy our milk in cartons and jugs at the supermarket and throw it out. Right. Well, it was... It's only a new thing. It's, it's it's like half a century old, you know, this this whole consumer-driven thing. And it really took some doing to um, twist everybody and everything around to, to suit that, you know, that hyper-production uh, 
you know that that that's hyper escalation of production and consumption um, to drive things. It hasn't been that long. It hasn't been that long at all. Um, and it was very hard to train people into doing that. So they were very clever about it. Um, and it didn't take long. You know, a handful of years it took to train everyone into doing it. Yeah. Well, I, was, I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was um, reading an article. You know, I, I guess, I guess we just got to have, yeah, we just got to be mm, as clever as that <laughs> to train people in a handful of years back the other way. Yeah. Well, I was reading an article about sort of nanoplastics and, you know, how they're getting, mm. and, and so like, you know, how, what, what I can do to stop producing. And I, I thought about like, what, like plastic isn't that old, maybe 70 years or so mm. and like i can't imagine living without it i can't imagine like what it would be yeah. like to to stop consuming plastic let alone to like get rid of all the plastic things i already own i don't i don't see how it's possible look and that and it would be it would be irrelevant i mean if if you got every i mean okay you you doing that getting rid of all your plastics and eliminating plastic from your life you know, of course that would have no impact. But then you're like, you know, oh, the man was walking on the beach and he saw all the fucking Star, the starfish. Things, starfish washed up on the beach and, and he throws one back and it's like, why would you bother doing that? And it doesn't even matter. It says, well, it mattered to that one. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, that's what we've got to do. And every drop in the ocean, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's say everybody did that. Let's say everybody got rid of all the plastic stuff out of their life, out of the thing. You know, the fact is that most of those nanoplastics you're talking about, that they're not coming from us. Most of it's coming from textile manufacture. And that's not even people throwing textiles out. That's the manufacturing process of textiles now. You know, all of your clothes, unless you've got a bit of hand-woven alpaca bloody scrotum or something that you're wearing, you know, all of that. That's what's called. Cool. That's what. That's what puts ninety percent of all those nanoplastics into the ocean. So there's, you know, I mean, you could campaign your ass off to get everybody to divest as much as possible, and like ironically throw out all of their plastic items in their <laughs> house to save the environment. And it's like, nah, bros, that's not going to do it. Um, you know, this is a machine. It's an industrial freaking machine. Um, you know, we have problems with water. In Australia um, and you know so what uh, we all stop showering or stop washing our clothes stop watering our plants and that'll save the water shortage problem it's like nah you know that's uh there's people on Wall Street are buying up the water rights all over our country and then taking it and hoarding it you know it's and most of the water that's being used is in massive agribusiness on a scale that we can't even fucking imagine you know most of the water 90 percent of it's being used industrially like that and or it's being hoarded um you know as an asset a, a new asset class or relatively new asset class you know that can be used to draw against for futures and bloody you know put new layers of derivatives and shit so it's like yeah me having a shorter shower or like, you know, only drinking half a liter of water instead of drinking a full liter. I'm not saving the freaking planet, bros. You know, these are these are huge, massive systems um, that are way out of our 
understanding, <laughs> let alone ability to influence, you know, and we could seize on one part of it and campaign like hell to change that. And I don't know, you get one part changed, maybe. And they'd either just go, yes, that's right. You win. Uh, we're changing it. And then they either would just not change it and say they have, or they just jujitsu their way around it and find another way. Look, it's, um, I, I can understand why my, why my kids are like, yeah, no, fuck this. I'm, you know, this is useless. It's hopeless. I have no plans for the future. No hope for the future. It's just whatever will ease <laughs> my way through the misery of today. I'm going to do that. Um, I can see why they're, they're there, the poor little buggers. Um, and it's hard for me knowing what I know as, as a father to try and like, uh, <laughs> you know, disingenuously bloody and try and make them feel enthusiastic about their future, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Really Cause, well, cause I, you know, I'm also, um, you know, doing some sort of business coaching, trying to help people, you know, who are creating, you know, sustainable businesses and looking, looking for, looking for positivity wherever I can to support and being yeah. part, being part yeah. of that community means being in conversation with people who are just relentlessly upbeat and positive and can yeah. do. And I want to honor them <laughs> and I want to, you know, and, know, and at a certain point, I also want to shake them and say, like, we're not going to yeah. innovate our way out of this. Yeah. I mean, it seems virtuous, you know, it's like, and you feel guilty for not, you know, and, and it's infectious too. Like I want to join in. I want to do the high fives with them and it looks great. I want to do that so badly. I'd fucking love to be there. You know, I'd love to have a few shots of Jaeger and do a double high five and go, Ooh, <laughs> and you know, just know that everything's going to be fine. And that, you know, it's all right. We've got a, I don't know, a recycling plant opening down the road. Everything's fine. And, you know, we're, we're, we're putting in, you know, 2% of our profits into that. And, you know, we've got green solutions and everything's fine. We're doing impact investing that's ethical. And we're, I just want to be yeah. there and be happy. Yes. About it. It's like, no, it's right. We're going to Mars. We're going to mine asteroids. You know, we're going to be able to like, um, you know, shoot all of our radioactive waste into space and like, forget about it. Um, I want, I want to be there. That'd be freaking awesome. It would be a nice life. It would be a nice life. And I could probably ignore everything that's happening to most of the people on the planet, uh, for a couple of decades. If I could just find a way to insert myself into that, um, you know, diminishing little bubble of privileged people there. It'd be freaking great. I'd, I'd, I'd fucking love to do that. It'd be awesome. It'd be even better if I could get my kids into that. It's like, I know if I could just let my kids have a couple of decades of ease and fun and happiness, um, that'd be awesome. But, you know, they'd have to come out the other end of that and, you know, back into the real world when that bubble pops. And, you know, it's probably better that they're in there now and facing it. Mm-hmm. Maybe depression is what everybody needs to feel for a bit. Hmm. Maybe everybody needs to feel absolutely devastated and just crawl into bed and not want to come out of the covers for a, a few weeks. <laughs> and just, and then think, how the hell will I live? Um, and then suddenly feel lonely and stuck in it. I don't know. I don't know what the hell 
or how the hell we're going to get out of this, but I, I, it's not going to be through more positivity. Um, although I feel guilty when I say that, and I feel, I even feel evil when I say that. Like it's, it's a wrong, it's a wrong thought that I've committed some sort of mm. sin, that I've damaged people, that I'm, I'm not creating a safe space. I'm making an uns- I'm making unsafe spaces for people. Um, you know, I don't feel safe right now. I don't feel heard right now, or whatever. You know. And then it's like, nah, this this whole civilization, this whole system, you know, it's that's just the default. That's what is, and we just have to tweak it and make it more fair. You know, if we can just have it so that, I don't know, um, nobody's saying things like fat people anymore, if no one's saying that. And, you know, we get rid of the body shaming, then you know, just all the plastics will go from the ocean. And I don't know, everybody's focused on their own thing. But me as a as a fat dude, I I, I know I'm a fat dude, <laughs> and you know I know I've been just working too much in a sedentary job, and just keep getting sick and in these uh, positive feedback loops of getting sicker and sicker, and then being able to do less and less exercise and eating shittier shittier food. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, it's just I'm sorry. There's it's not a body image issue here. I'm a fat dude. And if I don't sort that out, then my kidneys are going to go to hell and I'm going to finish up with no feet in the next five years. They'll have to be amputated, you know. So I better get my shit together and do some fucking sit-ups and eat some greens. Come over to Howie's place, have a plate of soybeans or something. <laughs> Jesus. Oh. <laughs> you know. Um, but it, I don't know. You don't... You don't... I mean, I could just be positive... This metaphor is going somewhere, by the way. I, I could have a positive body image and just say, no, you know, my love handles are beautiful. My massive expanding belly is a beautiful thing. And, you know, I should be proud of my body. And I feel really happy about that. And, you know, it's not, you know, you know, it's not that I can't tie my shoelaces anymore. It's, you know, it's, um, I don't know, I can't think of a positive spin. I'm not sure how people get a positive spin on that. Uh, on our every time I, I like I don't know just making a bed leaves me completely exhausted and sweating and panting mm. <laughs> I I can't think of a positive spin on that but anyway I'd love to I'd love to just have a positive body image instead of going nah Tyson you're a fat prick you know sort it out bros sort it out or die you're gonna die if you keep getting around with all this fat uh you know, you're a man that doesn't work for you. You know, biologically, X, Y, that's not going to work for you. You're going to have a fucking heart attack. You're going to have a microstroke. You're going to lose your feet when your kidneys go necrotic in the next couple of weeks. So get your shit together, bros. Um, you kind of need that wake up, you know. But I don't know. We, we make all these bubbles, these safe spaces. And when I say we, it's like, ugh, I'm not even in there. I don't talk like that, and I keep getting berated by people who are in those bubbles where they want to make safe spaces for themselves to make the world feel fair. But the world that they're looking at, it, it's not the world. Most of the people in the world are really struggling and starving and <laughs> don't have the internet. Most of the people in the world. And, like, I don't know, you're there in this little civilized technological bubble and you think you're going to make the world fairer if you can find another way to say I'm fat without it being negative. Um, 
and then and then make other people say that. It's like, no, nah. no, you're fat. You, you need to, you need to sort that out, or you're going to die. Um, that, that's that's really bad. Mm. <laughs> I, oh. I don't know. That's how that's how I feel about myself. Um, and that's not you know I don't care. I'm not shaming anyone else. It's not about shame. It's just about well, I should feel depressed about being this fat. You know, I should feel, and I do, and that's got to move me on. Um, and maybe that's how we all need to feel about the world right now, instead of just having little groups and, and I know, little subcultures that invent new languages to airbrush the reality. Um, and then somehow just sort of go, oh, well, we're recycling, so we don't have to worry about the, all the nanoplastics because we're recycling now. And like, actually look at the reality actually look at what's going on think about what we actually need to do because i don't know i can't think of what we actually need to do it's not as easy as you know me losing the the 20 kilograms that i need to lose right now just to be able to survive the next decade myself um it's not as simple as that you know for the world that's going to need us all thinking straight and i don't know we're going to have to get comfortable with feeling a bit depressed about things and not try and airbrush it, not try and look for the positive, um, you know, not try and look for the gammon little short-term solutions or, you know, window dressing solutions that are going to make us feel better for a minute. Um, and maybe it's not going to be a fight in the end where we, we've got to get factions together and ideologies and fight for what's right or anything like that. Maybe we're going to have to actually just start cleaning up. Um, I don't know. Right. What does that look like in your bioregion where you live? The cleanup for you, Howie. Well, uh, you know, the the river a half a mile from my house is um, polluted from the the textile plants about 50, 30, 30 miles upriver. Um, I'm thinking of you know retesting the water from my well because when we tested it seven years ago when we moved in, it didn't have pesticide runoff, but now I expect that yeah. it does. Um, when we started gardening, mm -hmm. we didn't know what fire ants were. Now we, you know, they've, they've colonized the garden. And if I don't wear, you know, knee-high boots with my, so with my uh, pants tucked into the, to the boots and the socks, I come back with, uh, with burning, like, you know, we're, we're, we, yeah. uh, every morning my weather app tells me that there's a special, um, you know, fire hazard because it hasn't rained in two and a half weeks. Mm. Um, but you know, this it's well, beautiful. You could always though. just insist insist that the world that the word polluted is offensive, and that you know that now we have to say like purity challenged or something. I don't know. You invent a new so word for I, it. I, That'd probably clean the water up for you. I, I wasn't going to say this, but yesterday I saw a tweet from the Canadian Broadcasting Company about an article about offensive language and things we should stop yeah. saying. And it really disturbed me. And some of the words that we're not supposed to say anymore include tone deaf, and we should replace it with musically disinclined, and brainstorm, because that could be hurtful to people with, uh, who are neurodiverse and have brain injuries. And, and I'm thinking like... Well, look, I'm, I'm both hearing impaired and tone deaf, so... <laughs> Maybe I'm allowed to say that or something. I don't know. Under this weird algorithm of... Oh, fuck. I don't know, man. But, you know, like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm aware that I'm, you know, I'm a person of privilege and I have to listen to people who tell me 
that my ways of thinking mm. can be harmful and myopic and offensive and you know mm. and i certainly mm. hear you when you talk about like like yeah i my mind is in a bubble i'm not thinking all the time about the people that i can't see who who are at the short end yeah same uh me too and, and yet there's so much about the you know like i really want to do good in the world and so much of this feels like a distraction mm. and a waste of time and like the the moment I was really moved in this conversation is when you first said the words thousand year cleanup. And I'm like, I I want mm. that I want to be part of that. Like, yeah, maybe it'll yeah. maybe it'll suck. Maybe I'll get bitten by mosquitoes and I won't have a nice, you know, temperature controlled house, but that feels like something worthy of a human to spend their time doing. Can you tell us more about the yeah. the thousand year cleanup and where I can sign up? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I just think it's um, it's just a nice idea, and it'll be great. It'll be great right up until when somebody does thousandyearcleanup.com or fucking thousandyearcleanup Ltd or whatever. You know what I mean? As soon or hashtag if that ever becomes a hashtag, it'll be fucked straight away. But just what if? What if it just got to be you know a feeling for an idea, for a thing? You know that that because it, it's funny because it's it's the time frame that I keep getting when I talk to indigenous people from all around the world. When I talk to like any people, you know, indigenous or what you call non-indigenous, you know, but pe people who are connected to their place locally, who are connected to you know uh, other places that they're networked out to. You know, everybody keeps coming up with a, about the same time frame. There's a sense when, when people sit down and think through how long it's going to take to um, regrow the generations of parent trees and grandparent trees, you know, in the place and have that come into right relation and have all the ecosystems sort of uh, settle again into some kind of homeostasis, you know, and sort out, you know, I mean, a lot of the just ticking time bombs that are happening around the place, like, you know, fucking uh, radioactive coolant pools and radioactive cores, you know, at the North and South Poles that have just been left there under the... <laughs> covered with a thin layer of snow. Like, thinking about... thinking through things like this. There's a good thousand years. And, like, it's a thousand-year cleanup. You know, looking at even just the half-life of, of, of the radioactive waste that was produced just to make the rare earth metals for the devices that we're talking over now. You know, it's we're looking at, uh, yeah, a good thousand years just to get everything just sorted out enough that we could, you know, basically relax into some sort of abundance. So, I don't know. What's exciting there is that we get to have a transitional culture, you know, not something like a cult where someone invents a culture overnight mm. that's only going to last a couple of decades until everyone's sort of dead or insane <laughs> but actually allow these cultures that are being responsive to shifting landscapes in the middle of a phase shift you know that your culture is responding like that and being a culture of transition as the place transitions into the next thing that it's going to be that's kind of exciting so you are there howie and you're like you're starting the thousand year cleanup on your river and like every day when you clean, you, you, you might get, you know, I don't know, it might take you a month to sort of sort the river out 
and then you go to bed and wake up the next morning, come down, and it's fucked again. Oh, because there's people upstream. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's still stuff going on upstream. You know, so you build so you, you build enough relationships in your local community to be able to keep cleaning the river, but then your community needs to network, needs to be syndicated in with the next community upstream and the next and the next. You know, and this is a um, <clears throat> this is a thing we have. Um, oh, and I can I can tell you I don't know you um, I can tell you that that there's language names for these systems of law these uh, nested systems you know yeah. it's actually really exciting. Um, I can actually find that one for you here, yeah, and I will. Yeah. But there's um. There are language terms, you know, um, f the names of the different laws that, so you've got a, a local, a sort of a local law, and you can even have law on a personal level for how you need to behave and react and all these sorts of things. And then you've got the local one. And then you've got a bigger law that's regional and that connects with the next groups. And then you've got a larger law that, that, that shapes that. And it's just pretty exciting, you know. Um, it's it's very exciting. <laughs> and these these are anyway. I'm, these are you, laws that you, you jump in for a minute. Yeah, these, I mean these are laws that break this idea up. Uh, these these are laws that don't necessarily exist in our sort of Western jurisprudence, right? They're sort of you know baked into our our humanity that we need to re reactivate. That's it. Um, well, it's kind of both. You know, there's some stuff that just really lives in the land and then there's um you know there's some stuff that i mean is going to have to be different because the land is changing so there's some stuff that's law that is pre-exist that was existing before when this mountain was here and that mountain's not freaking there anymore mm. you know there's i mean we i mean the whole world watched like recently the birth of a new mountain and with that really big um um, that uh, volcanic eruption. But here, check this out. So, Annie Ampolina, okay, and so she's um, in Western Australia there, uh, and she's telling me about, and it just triggered me because you're talking about your river. So, her river is the Matawara, Matawara River. Um, and so she's got, for her local mob clan, group their um tribe in their language there's like an energetic moral system that comes from that landscape and from that particular locality along the river and that's Leon. and then but as you go along the river to the other languages that are all along that river um there's a there's a law that connects them all together now it's interesting because Leon at your personal level no one's your boss you follow that and feel your way through it as appropriate, you know, into that moral system. But it's the same for each of the tribes. You know, each tribe has its own true sovereignty. Mm. Um, but they're also coming under this bigger regional law uh, called um, uh, Walungari. So you've got the Walungari law that's the law of all the peoples and all the languages and tribes all along that river. But then that connects further afield from what's known as like um, sunrise country to sunset country. Sunset, sunrise dreaming to sunset dreaming. And you, you saw that in uh, Sand Talk, uh, Juma talking about sunrise, sunset dreaming. 
and that's that bigger continental system that that's known as uh, Wunan Law. So it scales. So you've got this system of Lian at the local level, but then that comes out and is syndicated out into a kind of cooperative of cooperatives out into Walungari law, and they all care for that river, you know, um, together. <sighs> but in that kind of anarcho-syndicalist way, you know. And then that, just that river, then and that region, then that's networked out. And then this is how it scales. It just keeps going out fractally nested, you know, so that scales out to Wunan law. And then that one, you know, that, um, that scales out to like a 2000 year old law that goes overseas as well. And so there's a big song line that goes under the ocean and along there from that woman that came across from Asia, um, way back. You know, so there's a dreaming for that. And so there's a bigger law for how you um, interact with people from New Guinea um, Indonesia, Asia, you know, um, Polynesia, everything else. And um, all that's all tied up with the big, how to make the ocean go in canoes and all that sort of thing. So there are, um, yeah, there are these systems, you know, like they're there. And, you know, these are the things that we can like uh, rebuild together because you might have lost the original words for that in your mm. place. You might not have access to those. Or they might be gone um, but what is there still is that pattern you know and that's like a governance that you can build that's a governance you can build and you build it from the land from the ground up just by starting your business of caring for that river you know and like building that uh, you know I said before relational capital yeah. you know that that's your wealth there that's your hoarding that's what you hoard is relationships uh, that's how you print hmm. you do you store relationships, not, not tens of beans and bullets, you know, um, you know, you, you build that relational capital. Um, you do things for people and you build up relational credit too, if you like, but then you keep leveraging that outwards and outwards so that your community is then networked in, um, with the communities upstream. And eventually, you know, you'll work your way right up to the source of that river and, um, and you'll have a nice big uh, network of a, a, a nice regional understanding um, that you have together, on a network of law that will keep that river healthy. You know? mm. And so then suddenly your governance is part of the landscape. And nobody, that law's not written anywhere. That's not, you didn't have to click yes or sign an electronic signature anywhere. No one had to pass that in through a bill. And, you know, no doubt that uh, that world will continue doing what it does. But in the meantime, Howie and all the people along his river, they just figured out how they're going to live. And they're doing that together. Yeah. And, and, and I don't you have know? to become <clears throat> exceptional in order to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get, you know, thousands of people together to sign a petition to change a law that will affect, you know, Ah, one vector for pollution in your river and your your groundwater. You know what I mean? That's that that's I mean that's all people have been doing for forty years. For forty years, that's been the response. You know, of most people who understand what's going on and and don't want the world to be poisonous and like air and like water. You know, everybody does the right thing and does the peaceful protest and does the action and 
has the law changed and has the policy changed and blah de blah de blah still it keeps escalating. It's like, well, no, that's obviously not the way you gotta go. And being grassroots radical it's it's different from, you know, just gathering poor people together to try and I don't know, leverage those numbers to try and get get a bill changed or whatever. It's like, nah, that's not it. And, you know, it's not eat the rich either. It's just, um, you know, how are you going to build up your relational capital and then keep syndicating that in this fractally nested, scalable way out and out until you can take care of your whole river right. and then start to connect that one up with all the other rivers. It's just like, I don't know. That's one artery in a body. You know? Yeah, I'm also hearing echoes of the the Greek myth of Antaeus, who had you know the son of Mother Earth, who could not be defeated as long as his feet were on the ground. Like like my strength comes from my relationship right. to the land that I'm in and on. You're planted. planted. Your feet are planted. You plant yourself. Ah. Now I, now I know what my podcast means. It's been, it's been eight years. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm quite you serious. I never means. thought, <laughs> I, just I never thought about that. Like, no, uh, I was you? thinking. I always assumed that was uh, part of your martial arts practice. And it was like a, yeah. it was supposed to be a, um, a pun. Like, well, it was, but it was, like but it was about mean. sort of eating plants, but also planting yourself against the mainstream. I never really thought about yeah. oh, okay. the, the deep... I, I just saw all these levels of, yes, it was eating plants, so like planting, you know, in terms of, you know, getting planted, in terms of eating all shitloads of cellulose, mm -hmm. and, and, and that it was also about planting yourself in place and understanding your region and becoming, you know, re-embedding yourself in nature. And also I assumed that it was about, you know, that chi and that center and grounding yourself, yeah. you know, in your martial arts practice. Well, I, I think I'm growing. So I think I just, uh, I've, you've, you've helped me see a whole new level of, of what that means. Oh, man. So, oh, that's I'm very grateful. I just assumed that's what I yeah. meant. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was our first yarn together. We were talking about yeah. martial arts. Yeah. We, we had that yarn with the sister. Yeah, with Glenn. Um, yeah, he did a session with me later where he showed me how to do that, uh, do that that Russian magic thing. Oh yeah, uh... yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the the, la the last thing that comes to me, like in terms of positivity, is like one of, one of the great privileges of my life has been to be a father and to to raise kids, and it's been hard as hell. Yeah, but still like so worthwhile and i see my kids and i see their generation like why should we get married why should we have kids kind of that that pessimism thing mm. and it's not that i have this like incredible urge to be you know a grandparent like i'm going to be like you know the jewish grandfather when are you going to give me children grandchildren but just to see them like like having kids is, is you know an act of of faith and hope and as part of like a thousand year cleanup mm. well for a thousand years somebody needs to be the generation after ours yeah and how do you know the challenge of raising that generation i but it's also i don't know it there's a, there's a kind of injustice in putting that uh -huh. on as well because like they have to have their own agency in deciding what they're going to be in the world and you know um 
Yeah, I thought I think raising care and projecting our hopes of you know you are the future. It's like I don't know. That's a lot to put on a person to tell them that they're the future. Yeah, <laughs> that they have to be this future, you know. So I kind of I don't know. I like to leave them be now and just see what they need, help them out. <clears throat> you know, they're going to decide what happens. They're going to decide. They're going to decide whether the planet burns or or whether it doesn't. And that's not up yeah. to us. So we need to step back a bit and, and just try not to do what the boomers did to us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just say a little more. We're, we're going to, like, well, at Generation X, uh -huh. you know, we're the generation, and probably the millennials too, but we're the ones who are going to have to um, skip. I, I, I think we're going to have to pay the bill, you know, because basically the boomers... Um, and the older Generation X people, you know, the ones that are sitting in power and will not leave, um, you know, even though they, they've all got dementia and can barely think straight anymore, and it's just all ashes, flashbacks, and bloody narcissism <laughs> and greed. Um, you know, they're basically, they've spent the future, yeah. you know, for all that, for, for those kids coming. And I just, I feel like it should be on us as Gen X. Now, I mean, I'm 50 now, and, you know, over the next 10 years, I'm going to have to look at divesting myself of any positions that I might be in or capital that I might have and basically look at our generation being the one that takes one for the team. Like, we're going to have to take one for the team and not inherit mm. anything um, and sort of pass that on somehow to pay, partially pay down some of the debt that our kids and grandkids are going to be paying forever. You know, like, I feel like we're going to have to take one for the team. <clears throat> and nobody from Gen X um, in positions of power or as presidents or anything like that, like, uh, we'll just we'll let that pass us over. Um, no more old dudes leading things. Uh, let them young people come up, step up, and do what they want to mm. do with it. And if they want to wreck the joint, then that's fine too. That's up to them. But I don't know. I don't feel like we should be controlling them or telling them what they should be doing or putting it all on them. Like, ah, it's up to yeah. you. Just say sorry and, and um, yeah, be a bit humble about it. I don't know. That's how I feel about that. Mm. Poor young people. They just <laughs> poor things. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yet I wake up in the morning and I look outside and it's still so beautiful. Like it doesn't look yeah, it doesn't look apocalyptic. You know, the, there's birds and squirrels yeah. and, and and leaves yeah. and breezes and bodies of water that are still blue and sparkling. Yeah. So, I'm confused, you know. Me too. I'm just, it's, it's, it's a weird anyway. So are you, from what you said before, are you yeah. Jewish? Yeah. I just, um, I, I just, I really feel like uh, a lot of the answers for how to, be, how to, how to be and how to look at this and how to deal with all this, uh, contradictions, paradoxes, um, the, the bitter and the sweet together, <laughs> um, how to be in the world and still survive and still be happy. Uh, I think I think I think your people have got that. I think you're the ones who can um, huh. 
share that with I us. I would love to hear. I would love to yeah. hear more about that because. Uh... Uh, I'm. I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm reading a manuscript from uh, Dove Fedler right now, mm. and um, so Holocaust survivor. Uh-huh. It's a cartoonist, and his book starts with a like. I don't know. So it's um. You know, it's a cartoon of a guy sort of standing with a big smile at the gates of, um, you know, a death camp. And it's just a speech bubble coming out saying, stop me if you've heard this one. (laughs) Wow. Man. And, um, you know, anyway, they they sent me this manuscript because they want me to endorse it. And I still, you know, I'm a few paragraphs in and um, I I read a few paragraphs and cry and then try to think about how the... How the hell is this fellow having this attitude? How is he keeping it together? This old man, and he's still mm. laughing, even though his the tattoo is still on his arm, and he wakes up every morning and he's still there. He says his name is dead. They took his name when they put that number on him. Fuck. Mm. He, he and he's living with that awareness, that complete erasure of his identity and who he is. He, his name is dead. He wakes up in the morning dead. And laughing, laughing, and just doing amazing things and having amazing thoughts. You know, it's kind of, you know, the survivors of this whatever's coming in this next decade, those of us, Mm. that's the quality we're going to need. We're going to need whatever that wisdom is right there that can do that. And that's what we're going to need. It's funny Mm. because there's, you know, when I look at the religion I grew up with, which, you know, again, is suburban and very sanitized and, you know, through through a, a period of several hundred years of trying to appear okay to Christians who, in that asymmetric yeah. relationship, you know, so now we have, you know, orderly services and organ music and, and the whole rigmarole. We mm. still, like the Jewish tradition still has all these hints of a land-based practice from yeah you know just yeah. just the rituals that my generation or the, my parents generation just found distasteful mm. like that's it was so sort of roman mm. catholic and ritualistic and and yeah. non-intellectual like i'm like but even the migratory sort of bedouin kind of feel that's in in a lot of the foundational kind of sense where there's just hints of that still coming through you know um you know, even that is place-based, and a lot of people don't get that. They think of, they there's this myth of nomad, of the nomad, of the wandering, mm. you know, person. The like what people feel about the Roma, uh, like people have described uh, Australian Aboriginal people for forever. People have, we've been described that way as these sort of shiftless nomads, just sort of moving across the landscape. You know, eating everything in one place until it's wrecked, and then moving on to the next. It's it's just not how we it's not how we do. You know, we we migrate cyclically and um, and seasonally around our estates, and and I feel like uh, you know every sense that I get from um, that kind of almost Bedouin like you know transitional culture happening um, coming out of climate change from thousands of years ago with uh, with your ancestors. Wow. Well, you know that that there was a transitional culture that came out of that, and and there's a there was a placefulness in the migratory uh, sort of cultures that I'm getting a sense of, and that you know some rabbis when you hear them talk that they, they sort of talk that up a bit, you know, and that there is you know 
there is this sort of sense of place and homeland and but then also being in your place that there's this diasporic way of like you know you take on the cultures and the customs of the place where you are because that's respectful of your place but then you your language your culture your belief your way of life comes into that place mm. as well and i just i just think there's there's such a a continuity there uh yeah, this kind of joyful survival and embracing of you know hybridity and uh transition and phase shift within that culture that i i just think um you know if, if i put my mind you know a thousand years into the future you know there's a few peoples that i think will certainly still be around <laughs> no matter what and, and i think yours is one of them wow you you've just given me a huge gift because I've, you know, I can I can get down on us, <laughs> you know, and cer certainly when I look at the geopolitics of the Middle East, and you know, like to 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 help me see that there is a tradition that has something to say about this sort of pivotal, dangerous moment in our in our existence. That's quite a gift. Yeah, man. Mm. Well, you know, that, that homeland there, um, Israel, you know, even thousands of years ago, that, that wasn't where, that wasn't where your culture came out from. You know, your culture is still the same as it was, like, or, you know, still has the same pattern as it had, you know, pre-Israel as well. Mm. And, you know, arguably the permutations like you look at that diaspora everywhere it's different everywhere from ethiopia to bloody new york to you know the expressions there that come yeah. out um are different everywhere like they have that same pattern foundational pattern but the expressions are responsive to place and arguably you know what happens in israel is responding appropriately hmm. um it's being responsive to place hmm. Boy. To a place yeah. that is, it's just like that. That's what that place <laughs> is like. <laughs> They're being like yeah. their place. Well, I'm also um, but also responding then to pressures from you know, North America and, you know, other different, you know, you, of course, you, you know, you understand the geopolitical stuff going on as well. There are a lot of things yeah, going but on. But I'm also like hearing your words about sort of the energetic moral system and the Walangari. And there, I think there is something like that between sort of the syndicalist Jewish communities all over the world. Like there's a way, there's a way in which yeah. if I know that there's a Jewish community in Lisbon or Athens or Calcutta that I can go there and feel yeah. supported. Yeah. Well that there really is. I mean that I mean I said, you know, when they first uh, asked me to do this manuscript I was just telling you about, I said there's no way I have time for that. Like I just don't have time. It it's, it has to be a no. You know, and that was my first response, but then I'm reading down and, you know, and she invokes this, she mentions this tikkun alarm, yeah. tikkun alarm, that, that, that concept. And, you know, and that's something that I was inducted into like, you know, 10 years ago. And it's something that keeps popping up, you know, in the Jewish community when I'm involved with, you know, different people, it, it does keep popping it up. And it's something that I was like, you know, inducted into and, and worked and worked with, with people for a while. And um, it's like, ah, oh, shit, because that's part of my, you know, what you call, 
<laughs> you know what we mentioned before. It's um, it's part of that, I guess uh, uh, that Walungari or even that Wunan law. That you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That 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 bigger law. It's part of that, you know. And I don't know if I'm with Jewish people, you know, no matter where they're from. I'm kind of, and that's one of those things that will bring me in, and it's a pattern that I know to follow and how to be respectful in that uh, in that relation. And so, anyway, when she invoked that, um, I just went, ah, all right, well, I have to do this because that's uh, that's part of my that's part of my obligation, my relational obligation to that body of law that those people were kind enough to mm. bring me into. You know what I mean? So for me, it's that it's the imperative of that. Uh, tikkun alam as what I think of as a law, as law for myself, as a pattern of law. Um, yeah, and and the other thing that's just you know it's like well uh, if and it, so if somebody invokes that or calls on that that's like well I have to answer you know I'm going to have to find mm. the time so I'm I'm trying to read this freaking manuscript now, but you know the problem is I, I I can't get through half a page without crying and and I can't see the freaking yeah. screen <laughs> you know? so it's taken me forever. Um, yeah, yeah, but. That, that's it. I, I just feel like you have that structure, you have that syndicated thing going on, and yes, it's dysfunctional in some places because you know it's in flux, and because some places are dysfunctional. But it's you know the diaspora. It's a place-based, place-responsive bloody patterning that actually has continuity as well and maintains the foundational pattern, but also elaborates and changes and shifts and goes through many phase shifts and has many different expressions, you know, um, and still retains, you know, law that connects everyone together. Um, so for me, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, what they said. Mm. I keep saying to my community, we need, we need to talk to these Jews. They're, they're, they're not getting yeah. <laughs> Like in Australia, they're not getting, you know, big handouts from the government or anything. Um, you know, like our communities keep fighting and fighting and fighting for inclusion and for funding for language programs and for funding for our own schools and for funding for this and that and law that sort of states that, you know, our stuff has to be taught in the schools and all this kind of stuff. Um, the Jewish community doesn't do that. They just, the Jewish kids finish school and then they just quietly go <laughs> to their real school <laughs> and they're learning, they're learning a couple of different languages there. And they're memorizing massive amounts of stuff and they're learning their law and they're learning everything else. They're going to actual an actual school and the government isn't funding that. Their community is funding that. They're just quietly getting on with that. Nobody knows that it's happening. They go to temple. Where did that money come from? You know, it, it come from the community. The community did that and they quietly did that together. Um, they didn't have to fight anyone for it or campaign for it or anything. There's no struggle there. It's just, they're just together, doing that together. And so like, it keeps ticking all my boxes. And I keep thinking, man, we need to talk to these Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty damn successful culture to survive. <laughs> all I guess that. you're... And, and, and no wonder Arthur World wants to kill you. It's just jealousy. Like, <laughs> I'm jealous. Well, I mean, just when you, when you when you say that, like <laughs> it, it 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 almost never occurs to me that I was born twenty years after the end of the Holocaust. My mother is a refugee from yeah. Austria. She was, you know, escaped at the age of fourteen. Uh, 
on a train to a boat to England with, and she was like the oldest person on the train. And like her world collapsed. Like I have almost no relatives. Like, you know, my parents are only children. I'm, you know, my, I have a, a yeah. sister, but basically like no cousins. And their world is gone. Yeah. The world that she knew, the world she grew up in of this upper middle class, Viennese, highly cultured Jewish community, you know, Gustav Mahler and Sigmund Freud. Like it was all gone. And yet she raised me 20 years later with like joy and hope. Yeah. And like, I don't think I ever really appreciated whatever the fuck happened or she did to be like, and she was mad till the day, you know. Like her whole life, she was distrustful yeah. of people and she had a lot of, you know, but still yeah. she raised me like we I went to plays and played baseball and did stuff and had like as close to a normal childhood as you can have, which is like a huge like fuck you to the world that tried to kill her. We haven't had this conversation no. before, have we? I just getting this huge deja vu, like, like this has happened before. Yeah, but look, bros, it's um, I don't know. You, you, you have community though, mm -hmm. you know, and and that that's just it. That's what makes it anti fragile is that you can lose your entire family, and then you know find yourself suddenly spat up on the shores of Ethiopia, and there will be a freaking table waiting for you. <laughs> you know uh -huh. what I mean? Wow. You could go to Ethiopia and find family there. You know, it's um, you know, it's it's a pretty freaking successful, um, anti-fragile, bloody, you know, very resilient, very adaptive, and and the key is diverse too. You know, it's not like just one sect and everybody has to follow exactly that. You know, it's very diverse. Mm. It's pretty much ticks all the boxes for complexity. You know, um, for pretty much everything. Um, yeah, I just reckon there's a lot to learn. Wow. Now, um, I, now I have to go back to Jewish history <clears throat> through the lens of Sand Talk. <laughs> hey, I, I did have, I, I, I don't know, I've had a couple of yards with Douglas Rushkoff about, uh -huh. about that. He just, yeah, I mean, and he talks all the time. He talks about that that stuff all the time. And I, I kind of, I've, I have learned a lot from him. I'm like, hmm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And somebody was, uh, a, a Jewish person was talking to me once about, um, that, uh, was talking about this, that, that, you know, he, this idea of he maketh me to lay down in green pastures kind of thing. Um, you know, that, that sort of prayer, um, that that was kind of a, <sighs> that 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 was sort of borrowing from a, a tradition of oasis making, mm. you know, from from mobile um, uh, Jewish populations in the desert, and it was a tradition of mm. oasis making, where you you know you, if there was a, a bit of a you know, sage bush in 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 the desert, then you know there's a bit of moisture under there and you know groundwater, and you leave uh, you leave a lamb there. And then move on. And the next time you come around on that migration route, it might be a year later, maybe the lamb's alive and it's been eating that sage bush and then leaving its dung and that's increased that place. Mm. You know, so the, the sage bushes have increased. And so then you leave another lamb there. But maybe that lamb's dead and then its body has fertilized that place as well. 
But anyway, you leave another one there, and maybe it's a female one, and those two breed. And then the next year when you come around, there's a few lambs there, and there's heaps of stage bush, and there's there's water that they've dug up, you know. <laughs> and oasis building happens like that. So over, you know, 50 years, a century, you end up with a massive thriving oasis in the middle of the desert from that. But there was that idea of um, that you couldn't just drop the lamb there and then ride away and the lamb would just stay there. You'd have to break the lamb's leg. And that was a really hard thing for a shepherd to do, to make it lay down in the green pasture there. <laughs> and um, so you could ride away. You know, there's, there was all this great stuff there. And, and once again, you see all that bittersweet sort of stuff of having to do the hard thing that's going to break your heart, but then doing it with joy. And then returning to that and caring for that and keep coming around, coming around. And, you know, that there's so much pain and, and terror and wrongness and evil and good and joy and life, you know. Um, I don't know. I feel like, it, yeah, you got some some secret business in there that's that would help people, yeah. I reckon. Well, so as I hear you describe it, it's sort of the opposite of a, a binary culture, right? You, you need the both and. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really embracing that you know, two sides of one coin rather than two ends of a, of a bloody spectrum. Wow, mm. well, this has been really uh, if, evocative and eye-opening for me. I've uh, you've given me many gifts in this conversation. Oh, same way, brother. It's really, it was good to talk to you again. Always like talking oh. to you. And um, yeah, you use this however, uh, you want. <laughs> whatever you want to. Do. Yeah, I think I'll just I'll just share it as is and just you know let people's minds be blown like my like mine has been. Right, we'll, uh -huh. we'll see. We'll see. How okay. That goes. And the uh, the I paragraphs just, um, you read to me yeah. were are they are they going to be published in something? I know you said you're work you're working on a book. Oh, they're from uh, they're from Santorp too. They are. Um, I'm working on it now. I've got I've got till the end of December to f finish it, um, but it's just finding time is the problem. I've done uh -huh. four chapters. What's it, what's it about? Um, um, I guess it's all the yarns since mm -hmm. Santor, and you know my messy, chaotic sort of thinking that hasn't settled yet, and how I'm trying to make sense of that, and all the like uh, wrong way stuff that I'm having to do. Like I'm doing a lot of wrong carvings, doing the wrong thing to express these wrong huh. concepts, you know, because uh, everything's kind of in flux, you know. So, I mean, you know, people might have found, some people found sound, sand talk to be like, you know, refreshing or, uh, I don't know, nourishing or whatever the hell, I don't know. Um, I, I think this is going to be, this is going to be different. This is going to be disruptive. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know what it's going to be. I'm, 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 I'm still working. A lot of the carvings are only half done <laughs> and works in progress you know, for each of the chapters. So I'm still carving right now. It's still writing. And I've got till the end of December. That's my deadline uh, to get that manuscript gotcha. in. I'm just imagining what my, what my, so what my publisher would say if I said, I'm still working on a carving before I can write <clears> the <throat> chapter. Yeah. Um, I, so I don't know yet. And my preferred title for it is, I don't know, it's um, uh, 12 Ways to Avoid Lists in the <laughs> Anthropocene. So it's cheeky. But they, they, won't, no. they won't do that. They won't let me have that title. They never let me have my title. They'll pick something like, you know, you know, oh, 
magical black thinking <laughs> to help you sleep at night or something. You know, I don't know what. Yeah, whatever. It'll it'll the title will be the opposite of what I intended. <laughs> Which will be a good thing because otherwise I won't sell any. Right. So the uh, yeah. the text will be subversive of the title. Yeah. I'm pretty sure no one would read anything that I ever wrote if I got to keep my original <laughs> titles. I'm glad that I, I get I get you know advice from people who know something about marketing. Mm -hmm. <sighs> all right, well, wish you the all, all the best in the carvings and the writing, and again, a, a yeah, no huge worries, but pleasure to reconnect with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel I feel better. I feel like I, I wasn't talking to you right before and I feel like we, we had a good yarn this mm. time well some, some mm. anyway you come on my podcast and then you can do the <laughs> I would I, uh, next time like uh, so yeah you, you can come to my house and, and then like yeah and I'll, I'll show you that I can be a all right, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna phone up on <laughs> Jewish history I used to teach it but it, uh, it's been a long time so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it again oh. through this uh, complexity anti-fragile connected All right. lens and see what comes up for me yeah ah oh, look you know we keep getting all these books the nordic secret and all this kind of stuff i want that jewish <laughs> secret so yeah you study up and when you reckon you got some some clear patterns yeah. do you do you know a book do you <laughs> know a book, you called, the, you know a book called the jew and the lotus oh no it sounds good awesome. it's um it was based on a bunch of conversations between like the Dalai Lama and the Buddhist spiritual community and um, and and sort of mm. some old school mystical rabbis. And the idea was the Dalai Lama at some point said, like, we got to learn about how to live in diaspora because we, we got kicked out of Tibet. Yeah. And in the meantime, you had all these nice. Jews, you know, like Ram Das, <laughs> who who mm. left after, you know, at the end of after World War Two, kind of left Judaism and rediscovered spirituality through Buddhism or through Hinduism, yeah. through Taoism. And it was sort of a the, the book was about the coming together, the convocation of these different communities to see, like, what can we learn from each other and what can we learn about ourselves? Well, that's. Uh, I was just going to say they shouldn't be asking the Jews that they should. The Tibetans should be asking the indigenous people that they genocided and kicked out from there to to make Tibet mm. in the first place. Um, so you know it's probably inappropriate they're talking to Jews. But then I thought about it and thought, no, it's probably appropriate they talk to Jews. Too. <laughs> yeah, we've been on both sides. We're, you know, we've been on we've been on all Canaanites, sides of everything. Canaanites and all that sort of thing. It's like you know, yeah. It's like how how to be you know um, you know indigenous and and a, and a colonist hmm. at the same time <laughs> and then get kicked out and then have to figure out what the hell and how the hell yeah you it's, it it's like it's yeah it's that like we're we're, we're living out the uh, john rawls theory of justice like we get to play all the roles yeah 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 we've got every perspective <laughs> covered from pretty much every culture and every language on the planet so you know um yeah probably worth a listen you, anyway you let me know when you all get right. it all worked out 
and then we'll we'll fix the world Love together. Um, yeah. I can't wait for my for my yeah. kids to hear this. Yeah. And uh, so I don't I don't know I don't know what they'll yeah, what yeah. they'll think of it, but uh, you know they'll they recognize they recognize. Well, you can you can write the book. Your next book is Scroll Talk: <laughs> um, How Jewish Thinking yeah. Can Save the World. <laughs> and then and off we go. So, um, <laughs> I'll have to come up. I'll have to, yeah, yeah. Let, have to invent vegan parchment. Uh, all, all right. right. Thank That's you, brother. I, I, I love talking to you. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> That's the one. All right, man. Bye. That's daily. All right. Catch you. All right. And that's a wrap. You can find the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 494. Wow. I'd love to hear what you think about that conversation. My head's still spinning. And this is now almost a week later as I'm uh, preparing to publish it. Uh, let's see what's going on. Uh, running news, got a new pair of zero shoes that have a little bit more support for Ultimate. And I tested them out uh, over the weekend twice, and they seem good. Um, we got a little bit of a dust bowl going on here. It hasn't rained in a couple of weeks. So uh, they, they proved their metal in a little bit of mud. Oh, I'm uh, looking out the window, and my 87-year-old neighbor is on his roof with a leaf blower. So that's fun. <laughs> Sorry to get distracted there. But uh, that reminds me of uh, gardening. I, we put a bunch of sweet potatoes in our neighbor's uh, garden. He's got better protection from deer and groundhogs than we do. So we got to go dig those up, see if anything came of those. Also been uh, getting free mulch from the city, from the ch county of Chatham, North Carolina, and putting that on beds. So hopefully that'll that'll grow some great stuff this coming year. And we've also begun pulling out a whole bunch of honeysuckle that has taken over one of the, the side flower beds. So uh, it's nice to do weeding and clean up in December because things don't grow right back. So I guess that's uh, movement news and also garden news. So I guess we'll leave it there for now and head straight into thank yous. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parangan. 
Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 